You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to conduct a classic album dissection of Prince's Purple Rain on its 25th anniversary. And later on, Greg and I will review the new album from Jack White's latest side project, Dead Weather. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing, creating speaker systems for the iPod and the computer, allowing music fans to listen critically. Online at alltechlansing.com. Hear what's next. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. The reason that, uh, that we're here talking is because I have some heavy news, I guess, to say. Unfortunately, we're going to have to cancel a bunch of our shows coming up. I actually have a form of cancer in the parotid gland. But the, the good news is that it is very treatable and, and they've caught it early and it's not anywhere else in my body. And so, so that's the good news. Sad news from the Beastie Boys camp this week. That was Adam MCA Yauk, one of three MCs in the Beastie Boys, announcing on the trio's website that he was to undergo cancer surgery, and this would force the Beastie Boys to cancel a bunch of upcoming concert dates, including some major festivals in New Jersey, in Austin, Texas, Lollapalooza in Chicago, in Montreal, San Francisco. Yauk basically said that they had caught the cancer in his throat in time and that he would be able to recover, but the Beastie Boys would put everything on hiatus for the moment, including the release of their upcoming studio album, and uh, would be back in action soon. Uh, one interesting aspect of this, Jim, is that as a result of this, a number of these festivals were left without a major headlining act right. or one of their major headlining acts. The Beastie Boys bowing out at Lollapalooza, for example, left a major void in that Saturday night lineup, the middle date of the three-day festival in Chicago. What has happened is the uh, promoters moved immediately to uh, slot in the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs as a substitute in that headlining slot. Some people would argue that uh, they are not nearly a band of the stature of the Beastie Boys in filling that slot. Yeah. And uh, the flip side of that being that uh, no refunds would be given. This is a standard policy at a lot of these big festivals. You know, when we're talking about dozens, uh, in the case of Lollapalooza, hundreds of bands. Right. A number of people saying, hey, listen, I bought my tickets specifically to see the Beastie Boys. I paid 80 bucks to go see the Beastie Boys on Saturday night, yeah. and I'm not going to get a refund. I think it's fundamentally unfair. I mean, it's one thing if you bought a three-day pass, like Lollapalooza's $205, right? But if you just bought a Saturday ticket, we have no way of knowing because these promoters never share statistics or dollars, any sort of figures. Um, but, you know, if there were like 700 people who bought one-night ticket for the Beastie Boys, it seems like they ought to be able to get their money back. If it had been a freestanding Beastie Boys show that was canceled... Under these sad circumstances, everybody would understand, and they'd get their money back. They'd just be out the fee. That, 
of course, is a little bit of the greatest drummer who ever lived, John Bonzo Bonham, uh, with Moby Dick from The Song Remains the Same by Led Zeppelin. Mr. Cott, for the second year in a row, you have missed your opportunity to buy me the perfect Christmas <laughs> present. I do believe last year it was Keith Emerson's giant Moog synthesizer went up for sale yeah. or a year or two ago, and you didn't bid on that in auction. Now, Bonzo's gong. That famous gong and all those pictures behind his Vistalite orange drum set. You did say gong, right? Gong, Gong, yes. not bong. No, not okay. his bong. Okay. I don't know about his bong. Uh, his giant pasty gong, the, uh, I don't know, had to be about 48 inches or 50 inches. Uh, the one that's behind <laughs> him in all those photos was up for auction. It didn't get the price they were hoping for. Butterfield's entertainment memorabilia was hoping a bid would come in as high as 120000 uh, <laughs> When it didn't sell at auction, a private buyer purchased it for 64000 which, if you ask me, is still a bargain because a gong <laughs> that big, no, I'm telling you, if you bought a new gong with the stand and everything, it's still like $2,000. So, you know, add another six. 62 on for the fact that it was owned by Bonham, and I would have been a happy person on Christmas, but no. They're going to have to raise my salary, that's all I can say. Otherwise, it would have been yours. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that, of course, is Purple Rain, the iconic title song from Prince's sixth album, released in 1984. Every few months on this show, we like to take a classic album and and dissect it, figure out why it works and why it's still a masterpiece, why, all these years later, people are still listening to it and talking about it, and that is absolutely the case with Purple Rain. Purple Rain was the record that, more than any other release in Prince's career, made him a superstar, a worldwide phenomenon. No small feat, considering that in 1982, he had released 1999, an album that established the sound of Minneapolis. He had come out of Minneapolis as an artist associated with R&B. He was a guy who posed in women's lingerie on his (laughs) third album cover, Dirty Mind, in 1980, and, and got a lot of critical acclaim. But it wasn't really until those twin blockbusters, 1999 and Little Red Corvette in 1982, that he became uh, a pop star. Purple Rain took it a step above. Uh, Not only was there a movie associated with the making of this record, there was this tremendous music, a a series of hit singles, 13 million copies sold. At the height of the blockbuster era, Jim, Springsteen, Michael Jackson, artists selling tens of millions of albums. Prince was right there with them, and in many ways was the leading edge of the cutting edge when it came to the mainstream pop stars of that era. And I'm especially thinking of uh, his guitar playing on this record. I think it was a real revelation to people who saw him as this keyboard-heavy R&B musician prior to this. You know, his guitar playing, the combination of Hendrix and Santana, Ernie Isley, Eddie Hazel of Parliament Funkadelic, he was bringing in all these predecessors and at the same time being a complete original with it. And that guitar was all over this record. (laughs) 
Well, I tell you, I have thought more than once in recent weeks, as we've heard again and again and again, uh, Thriller being credited with the album that broke down racial boundaries for this era and and genre divides, mixing, you know, funk and soul and R&B and pop and and rock. Yeah, that was true, obviously, and it outsold Prince. Yet Purple Rain's the album I would take to a desert island. Prince had better taste. The (laughs) rock he adopted was cooler rock. He really understood the new wave, the cutting edge of, uh, of rock and roll in that era. Uh, the funk he liked was dirtier funk. I mean, he was coming from Clinton, you know, and I don't, I mean, in a million years, you can't imagine Michael Jackson jamming out to Parliament Funkadelic. Right. Um, the key thing musically, I think, in this album, you know, there's a couple of trademarks with Prince. He was making phenomenal use of the Lynn drum machine, mm-hmm. one of the earliest drum machines at that time. It's a big part of his sound. There are certain synthesizer uh, patches, the earliest digital synthesizers, that are a big part of his sound. But when you think 80s music, so much of it is dated, and it is hamstrung by the technology. I think that the sounds he crafted on Purple Rain, which all have a sort of psychedelic sheen, mm-hmm. whether it's a pop song, a rock song, or a funk song, they all are kind of filtered through this Beatles uh, psychedelic yeah. notion, which would really flourish in the next two albums he made. I can't That's one thing, and also there's just the timelessness. He had a certain beat and a groove that that was his and his alone, and it hasn't aged a day. I would posit that a big part of the success is the fact that he, probably for the only time in his long career, had a band that he was letting in and actually incorporating in the songwriting and in the recording. This was a one-man band previously up to this point who made the records on his own in his home studio, had a wonderful touring band, but when it came to writing the songs and recording them, he didn't let other people in. Now he had a phenomenal group. Some musicians, notably the keyboardist Matt Fink, Dr. Fink, who had been with him for a long time and he really trusted and two newcomers who were very notable Lisa Coleman initially came on board with keyboards to replace Gail Chapman, who'd been the touring keyboardist, wasn't long after that that her significant other, Wendy Melvoin, was brought on to replace Des Dickerson on guitar. I think they gave him that moment in Wizard of Oz, you know, where it goes from black and white to technicolor. <laughs> That's what Wendy and Lisa brought to Prince and the Revolution on Purple Rain. Wendy and Lisa have continued to record as a duo in Los Angeles since leaving Prince in the late 80s, uh, releasing a string of albums together. And in addition, they've been uh, doing a lot of soundtrack work for TV shows, including Heroes. We're very pleased to have Wendy and Lisa with us now to talk about their career with Prince and the making of the Purple Rain album. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. And Wendy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Glad to have you both here. Let's start with how you guys hooked up with Prince. Lisa, you were first on board, coming on to play keyboards in the band after Prince's touring keyboardist left. Yes. Gail Chapman was the original girl in the band. And um, due to her religious beliefs, it it became very difficult for her to continue with Prince and Mm. the direction that he wanted to take. Um, But me, being the demon that I am, (laughs) I jumped right in (laughs) with great pleasure. (laughs) Max, maximum insalubrious intentions. I uh, no, I had no idea what I was getting into. Actually, I thought I was going to be a a piano player, 
but yeah, I, I joined on at Dirty Mind. I actually started in the recording process uh, with Dirty Mind before we even played any gigs or anything like that. Mm. He was working on Head, of course, so that was my first, <laughs> my very <laughs> first vocal. So let me get this straight. Prince, you joined Prince's band. He wants you to wear lingerie on stage, and he's asking you to record a song called Head. And yeah. what was your reaction to And I'm to like, this? okay. Oh, God, I thought it was, oh. So wait till I get to tell my story. <laughs> I thought of it more in terms of a really punk rock kind of situation, or that's where I took it for myself to get through to survive, because I wasn't really a girly girl at all. But, uh, yeah, I, I got into it because of, well, I liked the music. I liked his groove factor, and I liked his rude boy attitude. When you got to go to Minneapolis and see how these guys actually lived, I mean, it, it had to become clear that there was, there was the big act on stage, and then there were the real people, right? Uh, you would think. Because anybody who, who later built a studio in Chanhassen, see, having lived in Minneapolis, right. you go out there, I mean, it's in the cornfield. Yeah. How cool I, and how I, alien I, and wild are you, you know, you're out and, you know, the big excitement in Chaska was to go to the Seven Eleven for a Slurpee. Hi, be, oh, be, tell me about tap. it. Yeah, the lion's tap for a burger. Look, right, right, I'll tell right. you what, my philosophy about Prince and, and having Paisley Park out in the cornfields is that's, he's the king. He's the king of Minneapolis. That's part of his backyard. <laughs> that was part of the culture um, conflict between us because growing up in Hollywood where everybody was just a freak and androgynous and just totally cutting edge, going to Minneapolis, that was a rare breed out there. And Prince was really super freaky compared to, you know, the kids at White Castle or something. So <laughs> when when he looked at me and wanted me to doll it up and get dressed up. It was sort of like old school to me. Yeah, that's, sort of that like, was vintage well, that's for really, you. Yeah, that's not so cool. <laughs> if you're that, you're like trendy and, you know, that wasn't you're cool. You're a poser. It's too trendy. Yeah, it's poser time. And I was <laughs> right, like, oh, man. Right. I, yeah. Well, Des Dickerson leaves the band next. How long was it before, uh, Lisa, you were able to bring Wendy in? That was right before, uh, well, we were recording 1999. Wendy came to Minneapolis. But then when it really clicked with Prince, I think, was the 1999 tour mm -hmm. where our brothers and sisters and everybody came to meet me in New York, and Wendy was in my hotel room playing guitar, and Prince heard the guitar coming from behind the, my door and knocked on the door. He's like, who's playing guitar in there? He thought it was really good. Mm. And I said, oh, it's, it's a Wendy. And he came in, and he was like, play something. And <laughs> she just, like, it was a, an acoustic guitar, and she just strummed, like, this huge, beautiful chord that he was just like how do you do that but then the other side of it was then she was at soundcheck the next day where des had been having a some dissension among the ranks yeah he was really <laughs> angry and um he didn't show up to soundcheck and so prince knew wendy played guitar and he said will you check my guitar while i go walk around the the hall and see how it sounds so she he like, said do you know how to play controversy and i said yeah, sure. <laughs> Wendy, Wendy was a huge Prince fan even before I oh, even well, you knew know, he I was. mean, forget about it.
I'm, I'm much more from a fan perspective. I'll just go back quickly when I was 13 and my twin sister and I used to sneak out of the house and we used to go to a club in Hollywood called the Starwood. I remember we were dancing. I was 13. We were pretending to be 16, 17, still underage, but, you know. And I heard this song on the dance floor, Soft and Wet. And I ran up to the DJ at the time and I was like, oh, my God, who's who's that girl (laughs) that you're playing? And he was like, oh, no, that's not a girl. It's just this kid from Minneapolis. His name is Prince. He's 19, blah, blah, blah. And that's where it started for me. when I found out that Lisa got a call to go and try out for this guy Prince who she had no idea who it was and I had already been like (laughs) completely versed and flipped out for this guy and then I go into the Coleman's house and she has a cassette of the Dirty Mind record and puts on head i couldn't believe oh my god you're playing with prince do you know what you're doing and then cut to they're playing in all these little clubs in town like they played flippers which is this uh, like uh, it was a roller skating uh, rink here in los angeles that doesn't exist anymore i mean i couldn't believe it and then as you know time went on blah 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 i'm you know out of high school i'm 18 uh, I fall in love with Lisa at a younger age. We become a couple. And then he asks me to play Do You Know How to Play Controversy? And I, of course, tried to keep my SH, you know, what yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't. And I, but I did. Yeah. And then, you know, whatever. I went home and she calls me on the phone like a week and a half later and says, I think Prince is calling you. <laughs> and I was like, what? And that was kind of like the beginning of it. And then it was. Shortly thereafter that we started recording the songs to um, Purple Rain. Purple Rain. We're going to continue our classic album dissection of Prince's Purple Rain with Wendy and Lisa after a short break on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Later on, Greg and I will review the new Jack White project, Dead Weather.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Jim and I are in the midst of a classic album dissection of Prince's 25-year-old album, Purple Rain. And we've been talking to Wendy Melvoin and Lisa Coleman, key members of his band, The Revolution, at that time. You know, one of the things that was so unique about the making of Purple Rain was how collaborative Prince was becoming in the studio. In the past, he'd sort of done everything himself. He was a one-man band in the studio and then had the band out on the stage. With Purple Rain, all that changed. He brought the band into the studio, was collaborating with them, was even sharing songwriting credits with them. Wendy, what was the reality of this for you two? Well, it was a reality for me and Lisa, but it didn't pay the bills. Mm-hmm. How's that? Um, yeah, that that was pretty accurate for the most part. There were a couple songs on the on the album. I think that Prince did do by himself. I think "Darling Nikki." Darling Nikki was all by himself. Was all him, which you can kind of tell because it's got that fierce, like ridiculously crazy quality. But other than that, we had, we were always set up in a warehouse, uh, which was the tradition anyway, but we were seriously camped out in a warehouse with some 24-track machines, and we were working out these songs, writing the songs, and we would really write them as a band. It was, we were so tight by that time, and Wendy fit in so well and added such a beautiful color in her guitar playing and her funk abilities. You know, she had the perfect combination of groove and like nice beautiful chords which is really indicative of that in that record purple rain the whole well the song itself the opening chords are wendy you know with her beautiful big chords with like a chorus effect on it and i remember joni mitchell asking her like um what is that tuning you're using for those chords and it was just regular standard tuning and a lot of guitar players ask wendy what are those chords because they're so thick and beautiful and you know, using like all 11 or 12 strings <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a six string guitar but we would all look at each other and and just kind of know where things would happen bobby would hit the cymbal at just the right time and and you know prince would kind of guide us and like bring it up break it down go let's try going to a g here let's try go, you know and we just carved it out and then i think we booked a gig at first avenue and uh videotaped it and recorded that show and I think that's the majority of where the album comes from. The basis of those tracks were those live recordings of that First Avenue show. And it's interesting right. because the script for the movie, I guess, was kind of being written as he was recording, right? So that the yeah, And the band right. was a big part of the movie. So it was almost like the yeah. band was written into Prince's life, and he says, oh, you know, hey, maybe I ought to involve these guys more. So it was a case of, like, art imitating life or life imitating art one way or the other. It seemed like there seemed like some kind of a, a cross-pollination there. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's sort of funny because, you know, like how the, what was that guy who used to do the voiceovers for movie trailers and before Prince made the movie, he lived the life. <laughs> and and it was really true. <laughs> and it was kind of how it, it all happened kind of at the same time. Prince had had a, an idea to make a movie for a long time, but it was kind of a different movie. It ended up that that movie didn't get made. It, it evolved into this Purple Rain idea that was the battle of the bands it was like kind of like a west side story Mm. kind of inspiration for him with you know like i've been abused by my mommy and daddy situation so yeah it started out as one thing and it ended up kind of being the rock and roll west side story well in terms of the musical contributions i think it's become something of a critical shorthand since prince took such a turn with purple rain and 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 much more toward the new wave for lack of a better term side of things. And and since you two were, were new forces relatively in the band, a lot of that's been credited to you. People have said, you know, Prince brought a lot of the new wave rock and roll, synth rock kind of sound into the mm-hmm. into what he was doing because Wendy and Lisa came on board. Do you take credit for that? Um, I think that we were instrumental in um, influencing him and Lisa and I were cinephiles and musicologist freaks and we were from a different city and we were close to him and we came became this triumvirate and he relied on everything musically that he in us that he knew he didn't have and we became a great combination and we were absolutely more than willing to give him what we had well so i'll I'll tell you my take on that because i think the song computer blue does not get written Unless you two are in the group. Wendy? Yes, Lisa. Is the water warm enough? Yes, Lisa. Shall we begin? Yes, Lisa. You had a tremendous amount of influence in that group. I think you're right. I think you're right yeah, about that. Yeah, for sure. I, I, and it's, I mean, that is my guitar line. I mean, yeah, I mean. In the, in the yeah. three-part suite and all that stuff, that seems yep. to me like Lisa's classical training right there. Prince didn't have any classical training that I know about, you know? I mean, it's a very ambitious track. Well, and the song is credited uh, to Prince, Wendy and Lisa, Dr. Fink. You know, there's this songwriting yeah, credit he, shared. He, mm-hmm. did, he, did, he did start spreading the, the credits around. And, you know, and it was really just out of, like... You know, we were young and we we were really inspired and we hung out together. You know, we would hang out and play records for each other. And like, have you heard this thing? And have you heard that? And it was, you know, oh, it was fantastic. Those were the days. Hang out. Yeah, that just how it is. Like maybe if you're in your college dorm or something, we were just we were our college years for sure together. Right. So for we sure. Were just hanging out. Can you remember anything you were listening to when when making Purple Rain? Oh, uh, Lisa and I were listening to. Oh, I remember well, it, it would be things that you wouldn't really necessarily think, you know, had any influence, but they were so ambitious themselves. Well, I mean, like we, symbiosis, the, symbiosis, so like, the Bill know. Evans record with Klaus Augerman was a big record that we, Lisa and I, mm. were listening to, and we also, you know, turned him on to a lot of Peter Gabriel. We were, you mm. know, Lisa and I were big security people, and all those records, and yeah, not were the, like, you know, Ricky like, Lee Jones or Ricky of Lee, course, Joni Mitchell, Joni, and. and we would drive around in my car, which had like the biggest, most amazing <laughs> stereo system. system in it. And we would drive around and listen to Vaughn Williams 
and he really got turned on to classical music and got into listening to Mahler. Yep. And yeah, it was really interesting. Well, you you had this relationship with him on a number of levels. Uh, Wendy, I heard a story about you that I think Des might have told it to us, where you were oh, just no. the character in, in, in the studio, you know, your ability to sort of loosen him up. Apparently there was an incident where Prince was playing keyboard shirtless, and you started pulling his armpit hair while he was playing, and he started saying, stop that, Wendy, and next thing you know, you were kind of having this fake fight with him, and all the other band members were supposedly standing around in awe going like, I can't believe she just did that. And what, yeah, what more? He seemed to be enjoying it. <laughs> that's def- definite. I used to do it to his chest hairs. It's just, yes, I did it all the time. I also was the one who used, used to tell him if he played something that was cheesy to me, I'd say it sounded like porn music, and he wasn't allowed to use it on the record. So, yeah. <laughs> well, this is fascinating, not for the personal angle so much as the fact that Greg and I, as critics, you know, huge Prince fans, but many of the problems uh, of his records in the last 10 or 15 years, we've always gotten the sense that there's nobody around Prince who can come up to him anymore and say, you know, that ain't cutting it. You know, the idea of having Najee play on your record, not cutting it. I, I, not I, cutting it. There's yeah. nobody in Prince's camp that can pull right. his chest hair nobody, and get away Nobody with can it. do yeah. that. And yet you no, two. Oh, he wouldn't let anybody near him unless he was married to you. He's cut so many people out yeah. of his life, professionally and personally, and yet you two, you've always told him straight. Yeah, I mean, that's the, there will always be a connection there, and there will always be a healthy amount of anger for, towards each other and a healthy amount of respect for each other. And um, I just hope that at some point he can um, uh, let us back in naturally. I just don't know. Mm. Prince, call me. <laughs> <laughs> I miss you, honey. Oh, my God. It's a, th- a three-year three year blur for Lisa Coleman and uh, Wendy Melvoy, and they live to tell about it. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure having you guys, Wendy and Lisa. Thanks for being on Sound Opinions. It was oh, so thank you fun. so much, you guys. Thank you. You're listening to Sound Opinions and our classic album dissection of Prince's 1984 blockbuster, Purple Rain. Uh, You know, Greg, thinking about Purple Rain's influence 25 years on, there's no bigger testament than the number of other groups that have covered music from that record. Uh, They range all over the map, from the Chicago punk band Apocalypse Hoboken Mm -hmm. to indie Tronica band uh, Chairlift, from Mariah Carey to Of Montreal. (laughs) Um, There is so much in that sound that so many different people can take different things and, and, you know, not even have anything in common. The song I want to play, though, shows that Prince was still dangerous in this period. Now, in a lot of ways, we're not talking much about the movie, in part because I think it's a pretty rotten movie. I, you know, it's a silly movie. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, you see it once, and you don't really ever yeah. need to see Purple Rain again. One thing that isn't shown in the movie is that dangerous side of Prince, and yet it's there on Purple Rain. We heard Wendy and Lisa talking a little bit about the song Darling Nikki, which stands out because it is one of the tunes that Prince worked on by himself alone in the studio. I think in that context, the tunes that are Prince solo songs work well with the group songs because they're, you know, it's an album. It's a different flavor in between. This song became notorious when Tipper Gore, wife of the then soon-to-be future Vice President Al Gore, and her parents' Music Resource Council made this public enemy number one, along with a handful of other tunes, led directly to the stickering of 
albums, uh, you know, parental advisory warning, mm-hmm. which so what, right? That's like buy me instead because I'm a nasty <laughs> record. You know, the thing that people forget is that major chain stores across America would not sell anything that had one of these stickers. In in retrospect, I always thought Darling Nikki was a filthy song. And then I finally actually read the lyrics and like there's there's nothing in them. You know, I mean, compared to an M, M&M, Eminem has more nastiness in one couplet than Prince yeah. doesn't have any in this entire song. Yes, it's a song about a groupie who is hot to trot, who wants to jump Prince's bone. I find it not sexist or pandering at all because the woman is in charge throughout and he is basically left as a limp dish towel on the floor (laughs) at the end of this. He doesn't know what hurricane named Nikki hit him. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain amount of self-deprecation in a lot of ways. It's like John Lennon's song, Norwegian Wood. Mm -hmm. It's about something happened to me last night. This woman ran me over. I feel Mm -hmm. like I got hit by a Mack truck and now I'm going to sing about it. Uh, So in that regard, it's a very sweet song, except there is this dirty, sexy, funky beat. So I'm going to play Darling Nikki, here it is on Sound Opinions. I knew a girl named Nikki, I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. She said, how'd you like to waste some time? And I could not resist when I saw little Nikki grind. Darling Nikki by Prince and the Revolution from Purple Rain. We are in the midst of our uh, Purple Rain classic album dissection. We wrap these up, each of us playing a song from the record. Mr. Cott, what are you going to lay on us? Well, Jim, I'm going to go a little bit more mainstream, a song that actually got played on the radio. <laughs> Darling Nikki, because of some of those objections that Tipper Gore raised, uh, didn't get near any radio stations, but most of the rest of the songs on this record got played a lot on mainstream radio. And one of the biggest hits, of course, was When Doves Cry. Listen to this song again and, and tell me what you hear and tell me that it doesn't sound absolutely contemporary. Like this song could have been released in 2009 and still fit on the commercial radio spectrum today. I think it shows what a brilliant ear 
Prince had for music and the kind of chances he was willing to take with his music at the time of his greatest commercial success. And I think that's why this album holds up. And what's missing from the song? A bass line. Absolutely. Weird to have this huge dance track without a bass line. It is so amazing to hear that song now and realize the first thing that hits your ear is all the sense of space that's within the song. And he did pull that bass line out of there. When it was originally recorded with the band, the bass was in there. He pulled it out, and everybody said, well, what's missing here? And he says, exactly. That's what this song needed. I think that that adds a sort of a weird vibe to this song and at the same time emphasizes what made this album what and this song in particular so great. It opens with this very intense bit of guitar playing from Prince, and I think that's one of the factors that I think made Purple Rain such a great crossover record, because he not only had those R&B synths in there, but he had that heavy guitar attack. And then he adds a vocal line underneath that guitar that almost sounds like a distorted grunt, a groan of some sort. It's Prince's voice clearly, but it's distorted to the point where it almost sounds like another instrument. Then he adds that drum machine that was such a big part of this song, and finally he comes in with that classic keyboard line over the top. Yet you have this amazing sense of of an almost avant-garde track because it doesn't have that traditional bottom that you associate with a dance single. So when you talk about producers like Prince Paul, the Dust Brothers, Bomb Squad with Public Enemy, DJ Muggs with Cypress Hill, Timbaland, all these producers who in later decades brought a sense of the avant-garde into the pop mainstream, I think they were all referencing what Prince was doing in the early 80s, and in particular on a track like this, which was a huge hit, but at the same time still sounds amazingly fresh and experimental. It's When Doves Cry from Prince from the Purple Rain album on Sound Opinions. That's Prince with When Doves Cry, wrapping up our classic album dissection of Purple Rain. To make a comment on the air about that album or anything in the world of rock, call our hotline at 888-859-1800. You can also send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook. 
Greg and I will return on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the debut album from The Dead Weather and my Desert Island Jukebox pick. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by Alltech Lansing. Online at alltechlansing.com. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That was The Dead Weather with a song called Cut Like a Buffalo from their debut album called Whorehound. Another year, another band for Jack White. <laughs> this man is incredibly prolific, not, in, not only in the number of albums he puts out, but in the number of groups he does them with. Most famously, the lead singer and f- co-founder of The White Stripes, that duo out of Detroit with his partner, and former wife Meg White on drums. Then he formed a new band, a quartet called the Raconteurs. They put out a couple of records that we've reviewed on this show. And now he has a third band. That was the Dead Weather. Who is the Dead Weather besides Jack White? Well, he's not a, exactly the lead vocalist in this band. Even though he does sing lead vocals on that particular song, he pretty much takes a background role as the producer and drummer in this band and hands over the majority of the vocals to one Alison Mosshart who is most famously known as the lead vocalist in The Kills, yet another duo <laughs> that's out there and made yeah. a bunch of records. So Mosshart and White decided to collaborate. They brought in White's collaborator and bassist in the raconteurs, Little Jack Lawrence on bass, and uh, a Queens of the Stone Age guitarist named Dean Fertitta to fill out the lineup. So a new four-piece lineup built around White on drums, Mosshart on vocals, Let's listen to what they did in the studio before we give this album a review, but here it is, a track from the Dead Weathers debut album called Whorehound, and the single from the album called Hang You From the Heavens on Sound Opinions. From the heavens I don't know how to let you go Or if I should keep you I don't 
to the devil. That's Hang You From The Heavens by the new indie underground supergroup, The Dead Weather, led by Jack White on drums. Greg, I can see why Jack and Meg got divorced, because fidelity obviously is not Jack's strong suit. <laughs> Meg's doing just fine now. She's uh, Patti Smith's daughter-in-law. I gotta admit, I, I was reluctant to play this album, because while I love the first Tours album, and I thought that Jack was using that band as a showcase for his fondness for lush arrangements and pretty pop, the second record let me down in a big way. I was just like, well, do we need another super group? You know, we got Chicken Foot with Sammy Hagar and Joe Satriani, and, and another <laughs> band from... Jack White, I finally listened to it, and and it blew my mind. This is a wonderful garage rock, knocked out in in Jack's studio in Nashville in a a couple of weeks uh, project. You know, he's just having fun. He's cutting loose. Let's remember, he started his career as a drummer. He was the drummer in Goober and the Peas, a jokey alt-country band. That was his first claim to fame before the White Stripes. I think that this is analogous to Nick Cave doing the uh, blues trash rock with Grinderman or P.J. Harvey cutting loose with John Parrish on those two records she's made in the last 15 years. It's just something different, and it's a chance to like blow out the cobwebs with some really nasty, raw garage rock. Alison Mosshart is a scary vocalist. <laughs> <laughs> she is going to hand you your head in a basket mm. if you don't treat her right. And maybe even if you do, it's a vibe that permeates this whole record, that sinister sexual vibe. And I just love it to pieces. I give it a buy it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. Well, Jim, I'm surprised to hear you say that because I know you're familiar with a band called the Royal Trucks. And that's basically what this band is. Uh, Neil Haggerty, Jennifer Harima, the uh, duo that was in Royal Trucks for more than a decade, had that sort of sleazy pulp fiction B movie vibe in the uh, in the lyrics, as conveyed by Jennifer and Neil playing this nasty guitar underneath it. That's basically what this record is. I like that sound a lot. What I look for in it now, in moving it forward into 2009, is some songs to go with it. I think by far the best song on the record is the one we just played, Hang You From The Heavens. It's a song with some actual hooks in it. I don't think there are really enough hooks in this record and enough songwriting to sustain the attitude that's really? being conveyed. Because I think, you know, Mozart, I love her in the, in the Kill. She's a terrific vocalist. You know, White, he's, he patented this sound. He's... He's retro, and yet he's, he feels very modern at the same time in, in the way he approaches production. There's no frills here. So on paper, this should have worked, but I just wish the songwriting had been better. I don't think the songs really resonate uh, beyond one or two listens. I think this band is going to be terrific live. I'm looking forward to seeing them on the stage, and I think this is where this will really bloom. But as a studio project, I think it needed better songs, and I'm going to give it a burn it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Come on. 
Don't you remember? We were shipwrecked together. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island to pop a quarter in the desert island jukebox, and this week it is Jim's turn. Thank you, Mr. Cott. I'm going to play a song that is inspired by the uh, number of pieces I've heard on public radio in the last couple of weeks about the anniversary of the moon landing. I was a little kid when it happened, man. I was so way into <laughs> astronauts, Major Major Matt Mason and the whole bit. I was, I was way into it. And I'm going to play a song that, that was the doorway for me into one of the great bands of the U.K. and the U.S. I'm talking about the Mekons. You love the Mekons, and I think you've been there since the beginning. But I will confess, when I came to Chicago in, in 91, I was daunted by the Mekons. You know, they had moved from England, half of them, to Chicago, kind of based here, at least in part. You know, they've been going for three decades. They started as contemporaries of The Clash. They were punk rockers. They became one of the best alternative country, country punk kind of bands in America. There were 189 records. And, like, where do you even start with this group? <laughs> I don't know. I discovered discovered their uh, release that I think was the second one they did for Twin Tone Records in 88. So good it hurts. And that was the doorway for me. And this song in particular. It's called Ghosts of American Astronauts. And, uh, you know, the Mekons are very political and they're very satiric and they are uh, all intellectuals, very, very well read. And there is this conspiracy theory. I'm not a buff of these sort of things. But uh, the conspiracy theory holds that the moon landing never really happened. (laughs) That in the midst of the Vietnam War and the scandals that were soon to befall him, President Nixon had NASA stage the moon landing on a back lot in Houston, that it was all filmed. He just needed some good publicity. And that's what this song is about. But it's really about much, much more. Up in the hills above Bradford, outside the Napalm factory, that's how it starts. And it's talking about, I think, the the way that uh, giant consumerist culture can use its power and its money for very, very good things, inspiring things like walking on the moon. Still amazing to think that that ever happened. And also to destroy entire nations with with rampaging warfare. Uh, The way that Sally Timms sings this song is so incredibly sensual and alluring, and yet there is this heavy, heavy message underneath. The picture she paints with very few words while the moon landing is being staged. Nixon sucks a dry martini. (laughs) <laughs> and the way she savors every syllable of that, plus the way she says Houston, I, it's just unbelievable. It's the greatest song ever. This is Ghosts of American Astronauts by the Mekons on Sound Opinions.
Ghosts of American Astronauts by the mighty Mekons, Sally Timms on vocals, my Desert Island jukebox pick. Maybe not the greatest song ever, although listening to it, I'm thinking, yeah, that is a pretty great song, all right. Well, you know our rules for the Desert Island Jukebox. Greatest song ever that we want to hear right now today. Exactly. And uh, next week, uh, a band that I want to hear right now today as well. We're going to have live in the studio, can you believe it, the Jesus Lizard. I'm I'm already shaking with anticipation. (laughs) As always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our executive producer and fearless leader is Tori Southside Malatia, who it is rumored once had a mullet exactly like Prince's on the cover of Purple Rain. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, guys. This is Corby from Pittsburgh, North Carolina. Um, I was catching up on the podcast, listening to um, the disco show, actually, in the very beginning where you let out the news about Pearl Jam, as you put it, getting in bed with Target. I'm glad I heard it from you guys and not from a friend, because I've been defending them for years, and I, I'm coming to a point now where I really can't. I grew up on this band. I learned to play guitar because of this band. And, you know, I've watched U2, the Chili Peppers, pretty much all the really good 90s bands turned to suck. And now, now it appears that the one band that really had my heart is doing the same thing. depressing but I'm glad I heard it from you guys and not someone else. I just last week argued to a friend who doesn't like them at all that they'll be remembered like the Who but I'm starting to think they're going to be remembered like ACDC. Their legacy just isn't going to be what it could have been and that's a shame. I'll keep listening. Hello, listen to your great show with your mid-year picks. This is Darren from Chicago. Uh, one tiny quibble for a, an a cappella geek like me. Uh, Robin Zander was not singing a cappella. There was a, uh, some instrumental backing in the beginning of that song you played. Acapella sounds like this. So, uh, when you say acapella, there's got to be no other instruments on the thing. Thanks a lot, guys. 
Hey guys, this is Justin calling for, from Chicago. I just wanted to call and uh, say you put together a great show on Best Albums of the Year. I agree fully with the Decemberists, with Nico Case, and thanks for the art brute. I think that you missed one big album. I know you ran out of time probably, but Frightened Rabbit with Midnight Organ Fight. They had such uh, great lyrics like, Turn off the TV, it's killing us, we never speak. Oh, turn off the TV, it's killing us, we never speak. There's a radio in the corner, it's dying to make us see. Thank you guys, bye. Give me soft, soft static with a human voice underneath. Hey, what's up, you guys? Uh, this is Zach from Austin. Just listened to your podcast this morning about some of the best albums of 09 so far. I would comment, though, that it was a little light on some of the hip hop offerings. And uh, as such, I thought that I would suggest an album. Uh, I think that the best hip-hop album so far this year is actually a mixtape by Rhymefest and Scram Jones. Rhymefest is an MC who's been working with Kanye West. Uh, he and Scram Jones put out a mixtape called The Manual this year. Uh, it's absolutely phenomenal. In particular, check out a track called Pulls Me Back. It's got a sample you're sure to recognize. I work hard, still want to make it fast. Maserati, no brakes, me and you on the gas. At a speed so quick, we can't erase the past. It's no way that this feeling wasn't made to last. I humbly submit this for an additional uh, great album of 09 to date. It's always you that pulls me right back. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.